0: be seated. Good morning. Our subject today is the results of the gospel and it's a little bit pretentious to think that even in a few weeks we can talk about this adequately. Um, I heard a story recently about a young woman in her 20s who was living a life that was kind of according to the ways of the world and the culture and she was enjoying a bit of a, a licentious life and and uh, going out and partying with friends. And that led to an awful moment of sexual abuse in her life that was difficult and traumatic. And for two years after that, she lived in a kind of bondage to guilt and to shame, just to being wrapped up on the, or kind of tied up on the inside and kept trying to think about ways that she could fix that by doing more, becoming better. And it just led to further and further spiraling downward. And then one day when she was quietly in her room, God met her. And he spoke to her and he, he spoke through the reality of her shame, where she felt like she was nothing and nobody and was all wrong. And God reminded her that she was worthy of love and that he loved her. And it was as if the scales kind of came off of her eyes and her heart and her life just was beginning to be transformed in that moment that God met her and transformed her. And at this point today, she's living a life with Jesus that is whole and confident and assured and true, grounded in the reality of God's love for her. And I just wanted to start with that by saying, you know, as we come to this topic of the results of the gospel, let's never forget that really the results of the gospel are transformed lives. Uh, You and me, anyone sitting in this room that believes that Jesus is Lord knows that uh, we would be a mess. And maybe sometimes we still are a mess, but we're not as much of a mess as we might have been. Um, by the grace and mercy of God. And at the heart of our faith is a gospel that changes the life of a person. You can think of the woman at the well in Samaria. She met Jesus and she was transformed into a powerful evangelist. You can think of the demoniac in Mark chapter five who was isolated and alone and cutting himself and doing all kinds of things that were, and no one could subdue him. And he, and he meets Jesus and we find him clothed and in his right mind. The gospel is a story, it's a power. Paul will go on to say, the salvation of God. For everyone who believes and it transforms and changes our lives so if you don't hear anything else this morning just hear that uh, because we're going to look in a little bit just at a a more focused way of thinking about one dimension of what it means the results of this gospel and how it changes us and that we find in in verse 5 of chapter 1 of romans we're in a series on the gospel of god we've looked at its source we've looked at the content last week and now for a number of weeks we're going to begin to look at the results of this gospel And what it what it produces in the world. So look with me at verse 5 of of Romans chapter 1, as we just pick up. He's just talked about what God has done in Jesus, that Jesus was declared in power to be the Son of God. And then he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Among all nations, the obedience of faith. This is the dimension that we're going to focus in on in terms of the results of the gospel because this is what Paul says. This is the goal of my whole ministry. His ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith. So we want to look into that a little bit more deeply in the backdrop of personal transformation because this has a lot to do with that and explore what exactly this means. Our relationships, the purpose of the gospel is to create a people who in a new covenant relationship, whose relationship with the living God is characterized now by this expression, the obedience of faith. So let's explore this uh, a bit more deeply as we think about three dimensions of this people of God defining reality that we call faith. And the first dimension is, uh, is a cognitive component, what I would call belief. Faith grasps the truth about God that God reveals. And the flagship of that truth is the knowledge that Jesus is in fact the son of God who shares in his father's divine identity who is the crucified and raised messiah and king over all the world this God is known as a God who can bring life to the dead when Paul will go on to expound biblical faith in Romans chapter 4 by using the example of Abraham he comes to this expression that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You could think of that young woman in her 20s meeting Jesus that day as being dead. And God calls life and brings life to the dead. This is at the heart of our faith. It's what God did when, over the deadness of Jesus' body in the tomb on the third day. And long ago, it's what God did over the deadness of Sarah's womb and Abram's body. Long ago when he gave them this promised child, well after they were past the years of childbearing. So there's this cognitive dimension to believing the truth about God. But, James tells us, even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, true biblical faith is not just a faith that kind of has cognitive knowledge or a sense to a certain truths about god but rather it has a much more subjective dimension and component which is entailed as really trust handing your life over to the god of heaven and earth not just believing that he is powerful but handing your life over to him and becoming transformed in that through his death on the cross jesus has defeated creations and all of humanity's greatest enemy sin evil and death And his victory is unambiguously declared in the resurrection from the dead. And now Jesus, as the victorious, crucified, and risen king, summons the world as the king of all to allegiance. At the heart of our gospel, the gospel of God, is this royal proclamation that Jesus is king and that he's calling all people to come to follow him, to give him their lives, to hand over their lives to him. What we call, in terms of responding to that summons, is repentance and faith. It's the turning away from all other gods and turning to the one true God and handing our lives over to him. That's what biblical faith is marked by, this kind of trust. And it's a trust that is, arises from perceiving God's benevolence toward us so clearly displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge that faith sees, Calvin writes about this in the Institutes, the knowledge that faith sees is the knowledge of God's goodwill toward his creatures that is declared so powerfully in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And seeing that faith is about placing our life entirely in the care of this one who's been raised from the dead, Jesus. We obey the summons. And this is why Paul can write later in Romans chapter 10 that those who persist in unbelief have not obeyed the gospel and Peter can say the same thing that those who do not obey the gospel of God he writes that as an expression we don't typically think of the gospel as something to be obeyed but the reality is this this proclamation that calls for allegiance can either be obeyed or disobeyed can either be followed we can yield or we can hold back and not yield and so this expression the obedience of faith I would suggest firstly at least should be seen as Obeying the summons to give allegiance over to Jesus as king, to entrust one's life to him as Lord, to let go of the reins in our lives, to the control that we want to take over our lives and to hand that back over to Jesus because we trust in his goodness, his benevolence and his power. That's what the, the gospel is. It breaks forth into the world. It, it summons us to this response. And so I think that's, that's a first way of hearing this expression, this focus on the transformed life that we're looking at this morning, the obedience of faith. It's, did you, did you yield? Do we yield under his lordship? But it goes further than this, of course. This faith also entails faithfulness or obedience, an action component to it as well. It's one thing to declare your love to your spouse. You know, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's another thing to put that love into practice and action in visible and tangible ways that your spouse, your spouse can say, I know that you love me because you serve me in this way, because you affirm me in these ways, because you encourage me, because you provide for me, because you do these things. In a sense, that's, the love in a marriage needs to have an expression, an outward expression to be genuinely meaningful. And in the same way, when Paul writes the obedience of faith here, he is not only meaning an allegiance or a yielding to that summons, but he's meaning more than that. A life that begins to to be lived out publicly, that expresses one's trust to the living King Jesus. That is to say, obedience in our lives, the obedience of faith is the outward manifestation of our yielding, to Jesus it's what James means when he says you know I will show you my faith he says by my works by my obedience I will show you that I genuinely do believe and we show Jesus the genuineness of our faith that we have placed our lives into his hands as the resurrected king when we express in the everyday trenches of life our willingness to yield to him fighting for justice, we would say, or standing up against sin and evil, resisting sexual temptation and living lives of sexual integrity, rejecting greed and pursuing generosity, loving our enemies, forgiving those who have wounded us and hurt us. All of these things are outward expressions of genuine faith. Now, I do want to say this for the sake of clarification. So the obedience of faith that Paul writes about here and says that his whole gospel ministry is geared toward is, yes, a yielding to Jesus as king that then is expressed in these tangible acts of obedience. But let me say this, that it's important to clarify that our acts of obedience are not the grounds of the gift of new life from God. And this is so important to get straight because it can get crosswired in our brains and even in our experience. The gift of God in Christ to you, the gift of God of transformation, the gift of God that that young woman experienced many years ago, that gift is given to you without regard to your prior worthiness. Thanks be to God. Now, we like to think that the worthy receive the gift. The worthy receive the reward. But the gospel of God works fundamentally differently than that. The gospel is given, the gift of God, the gift of new life to the dead is given without regard to one's prior condition. Whether that condition is determined by whatever system of human capital and worth that there is. In Boston, one of ours that we love is education, right? The Athens of the West. Could be our our bank account. Our looks, our, our friend circles. It could be anything. There are a lot of things that kind of make you worthy in different circles. And the gospel of God comes to us without regard to where we stand on the human scales or rankings of worthiness. The reality is, is before the living God of heaven and earth, the holy Lord of glory, not one of us is worthy of his generosity and benevolence. None of us are. And the gospel is so powerful the grounds of this new life is is simply the radical grace of God breaking into the unworthy so if you're sitting here this morning and you think there's no way that God could love me I want you to know that you're a perfect candidate for the love of God on the other hand if you're sitting here this morning and thinking God better love me because I fill in the blank you're a perfect candidate to be rebuked and brought to a place of humility, that you might become a recipient of the the love and grace of God in Jesus. Okay, so that's the foundation. That love, that grace comes to us. It's incongruous with our worth. And that's what's so radical in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the worth of the Jewish people was associated with keeping Torah. That was the big thing that he, he wrestles with that even here in the book of Romans. It's not the same in our day but the gospel breaks in and says no it's not the healthy who need a doctor it's the sick Jesus says so that becomes the grounds of our new life and but the reality is this new life that's given to us by the grace of God then begins to produce a people of faith it produces a people who have the obedience of faith These people whose lives, yes, have been transformed. We know as followers of Jesus that we're deep and woeful sinners. But we know, thanks be to God, that we are wonderfully, miraculously forgiven. And that we have been received and adopted and welcomed into the family of God on no basis of our own credentials or or goodness. And we know that we're deeply loved as a member of his family. And out of that then, we begin to live a new life, this transformed life. That is what the gospel results in, transformed lives. And what Paul is saying here is that one of the key features of that transformation is that we would begin to manifest obedience to Jesus as king in our lives. Flowing from that place, out of that place, we begin to obey him in the everyday situations of our lives. And Paul says, this is my goal. It is the formation of a transformed people who are in relationship to the living God in such a way that that relationship is manifest or expressed in a life of obedience to Jesus the King. And if you wonder if I'm just making this up or if this is just a slip up by Paul in Romans 1.5, let's go to the end of Romans for a moment just to say this is central to his purpose. He didn't make a mistake. In Romans 15 he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed. That's what he wants to boast in, is that the nations have come to obey Jesus as king. Or later, in the end of the book, he says the exact same phrase that he says here in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says that this gospel about Jesus the Messiah was hidden, but has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. It's the bookends, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 16, verse 26, the obedience of faith. The transformed life of that young woman, of you and of me, is manifest in a life of obedience to Jesus the King. Do you remember, and this, this shouldn't come as a surprise if we know the ministry of Jesus, but you might remember what he says after he's raised from the dead in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, he says, look, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And then what does he say? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Or you might remember how he concludes his greatest sermon, which we have two versions of, the Matthew version in 5 through 7 and the Lucan version in, in Luke chapter 6. And in Luke 6, he ends and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus longed for people to come into obedience to him, under him. And that's what Paul says his entire ministry is about. This is what the gospel produces, a people who are marked by this kind of obedience. So it is a cognitive belief, but it's a trusting in and then it's a walking with. Now imagine that you lived in a little sea town on an island somewhere. This is make-believe and that people get around on boats and that's the way they do it. And there was a young teenager in the town and he was boasting all the time about a a certain captain of a boat that was the best at his trade, that everybody could, could trust, that could get you through anything. But he would never get on the boat with the captain. That's kind of the cognitive side, right? I believe this guy is amazing. But faith says, no, it goes more. It says, I'll get on the boat with you. I'll jump on the boat. That's the trusting side. That's that dimension of yielding and coming under his rule and reign and jumping on the boat. What do you do when you get on the boat in that case? I'm not a sailor, but I think I know. When you get on the boat, you do what the captain says. You attend to his voice. That my sheep know my voice, remember Jesus says. You start to listen and through whatever it is, calm waters, rough waters, storms, the daytime, the nighttime. You listen to the captain's voice and you do what he says because you trust that he has the ability to guide you through whatever it is that you're going through. That's a picture of the obedience of faith. We yield, we come in and we begin to walk in accordance with his way. Now, some of you might be sitting here and thinking, and I hope I've said enough that you're not thinking this, but you might be thinking, well, look, you know, I'm exhausted, Mark. And honestly, like talk about obedience isn't what I was hoping to hear when I came to church today. Uh, I, was, I was really needing somebody just to encourage me. And now you're, you're loading me up with greater and greater burdens. And, and I want to say to you, and honestly, I know that it can feel that way sometimes. I just wanna say that the, the invitation to obedience is an invitation to rest. It's an invitation to flourish. It's an invitation to come to genuine life. And the power to obey doesn't exist in you or me. Amen? It exists exists in the living God. And this was always the promise. God said, one day when I come to make a renewal of all things, when I come to complete the work, this is God in the Old Testament saying it. You can go to Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 and see these things. God says, when I come, I'm going to write my law on your hearts that you will all know me. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Or Deuteronomy 30, I will circumcise your heart that you might begin to walk in my ways. In other words, the promise was always when I come, to do the climactic work that I'm going to do. I'm going to change your inside. Well, how does God do that? He does it, of course, through the death and resurrection of his son, through the breaking of the power of sin, through the genuine forgiveness that we're given, so we no longer have to live in shame and guilt. But then he breathes his spirit upon us, much like he breathed upon the dust in Genesis chapter 2. He breathes the spirit, and we now have God himself living in us to become the power that enables us to walk down this path of obedience. So, don't ever hear as believers, if you're a Christian here, this morning. Don't hear the invitation or the call to obedience as another burden to be piled on your already overburdensome life. Hear it as a call from the gracious God who has put his power inside of you to walk into by his power and strength the fullness of human life as it was always meant to be. That is to say a life of obedience is a life well lived. It's a life of incredible joy and peace and wholeness. And it's empowered by God himself inside of you. That is the transformed life. God invites us into that life. That is the results of what the gospel brings about. Changed lives that are now marked by obedience to the king. An obedience that flows out of immense gratitude and joy. Because the gift has been given without regard to anything that I am or have ever done or will do. So then Paul says a couple more things as I'll bring us to a close. In this text, he, kinda, he talks about not only this dimension of what the transformed life is, the obedience of faith, but about its scope. Did you catch that in verse 5? Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And really in the original it comes next. Among all the nations. That is, Jesus is not some tribal deity. He's not just a regional God. He's not just one competing God among others. Jesus is the king of the world. And there is no human being in this world that does not rightfully belong under his rule and reign. And so Paul says the scope of this gospel, this work, the results are going to be brought about across the world. In fact, Paul is writing the book, the letter to the church in Rome to prepare his way to go to Spain. Because he wants to begin to preach the gospel in places that it has not yet been heard. Well, one of the things that's lovely about Park Street Church and so many other churches, but it's a huge part of our history, is that we have been committed for over two centuries to sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thanks be to God. This is a gospel that goes forth to every nation. We got to hear as a staff this last week from a a couple in our church who have heard God's call to go join his work in the Muslim world. And they'll be going, Lord willing, next year. The elders will hear about that from them this week. Tremendously exciting. We have, you know, the Kangs we just heard from on their way to Japan. The Cams are already in Japan. Carolyn Cummings is here and working in Kenya in this work. And the Fosters are in Mozambique. And more and more, we have people across the world spreading this good news. Because the obedience of faith, this mark of a transformed life, is to be found among all the nations, Paul says. So it spreads. That's its scope. Deeply personal to each of us, but its scope is to the world. And then the last thing to say is Paul says that he does this for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. You know, one thing that we're united around as followers of Jesus is that we want Jesus to be exalted above everything else. Because we believe that when Jesus is lifted up, and not you and not me, but when Jesus is lifted up, that amazing things happen in our lives and in the world around us. And what Paul says is he proclaims this gospel to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Why? So that Jesus the King would be glorified and honored. Well, how is he honored most? How is Jesus honored most? He's honored most through transformed lives. He's honored most when we understand the depth of his forgiveness in our soul. When we come out of guilt and shame and the shackles that those hold us in, the shadows that those keep us in, when we receive the wonders and depths of his grace and mercy, and out of that we begin to live a completely radically new life. When the church begins to live this new life of obedience to the King Jesus, the world will see that Jesus is in fact truly king, and they will be brought to worship him more and more. That's the dynamic, that's the way that it works. So when Paul says that he does this for the glory of his name, for the sake of his name, he understands that when men and women and children around the world are transformed by his grace, the grace of God, and begin to live according to Jesus' way, that people will see. And this can happen in all kinds of ways. I mean, Let me give you a small example. I was talking to a member of our church, a longtime member of our church, recently, who his wife is dealing with some significant health issues as they go into older age and he desperately wants to be here and worship with us in person. But he said, Mark, I'm staying home so that I can minister to my wife. And I just wanted to say, and I said to him, I said, that's an incredible example to me and to all of us of the love of God that has transformed your life. That simple, faithful act, that's one of the ways that Jesus receives glory One of my mentors in ministry was when he was a younger pastor, was living in a town in Wisconsin, and no one in his church knew that he was doing this, but he was the person to whom the local nonprofit that worked with men who were dying of HIV AIDS would come to to see if he would officiate over their funeral. And he did tens and tens, scores of those funerals over a span of a number of years. That's how we see the glory of Jesus, when people begin to follow Jesus in a radical way. As we love our neighbors, as we spread the gospel, as we prepare right now, we're preparing as a church to play a part in welcoming refugees from Afghanistan. I don't know if we'll be given that opportunity in the providence of God, but we've begun to make preparations because we believe that that reflects the lordship of Jesus in our lives. As we care for those who are displaced, whether or not they know Jesus or not, most of them won't, but we'll show them Him through our deeds and, and our actions together. When God's people are radically transformed by his grace and begin to live the life of the obedience of faith, Jesus is honored and glorified. So I started by saying a story of transformation. I just want to say again, the results of the gospel are transformed lives, your life and my life by the power of God. And in a dimension, this dimension, is that one of the manifestations of that transformation is we begin to hear the words of Jesus and his commands, not as burdensome things to weigh us down, but as invitations to fully be alive by the power of his spirit. There is no greater calling, there's no greater privilege, quite honestly, than to be a part of the results of the gospel, which are the church of God, living a life of obedience to Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for your love we thank you for your grace forgive us for all the ways that we disobey we pray we've already confessed our sins to you today thank you that you forgive and we pray that by the power of your your Holy Spirit we would walk into the newness of life that you have given to us as a gift and reflect that life through the obedience of faith we ask it in Jesus name and for his glory amen amen